Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for today's podcast. Today we present the second lesson of our series titled, The End Times. Lead Pastor David Fossil directs our attention to the Antichrist, one of the least understood aspects of the end times. Here now is Pastor Dave, and we trust that his teaching from the Bible will help us grasp a more realistic view of the end times. Go ahead and hug the person next to you. That was freaky, you know. <laughs> you know, I was leaving uh, the health club on uh, Friday, and uh, one of the guys I'd played racquetball with, he goes, Preacher, so what are you talking about on Sunday? I go, well, I'm talking about the end times and the Antichrist and everything, and I'm not kidding you, this is what he said. Ooh, scary, freaky, depressing. <laughs> I was like, well, I, th- I don't think you're going to be there on Sunday. But, you know, I thought, I wonder, do we feel that way sometimes? scared, afraid, depressed, and we don't want to think about it, talk about it, and wonder about what, what's going to happen in the end times. And yet, I think one of the reasons sometimes we may feel that way is because we begin to believe what Hollywood tells us about the end times. Honestly, that's why I showed you that trailer to the movie The Omen that came out just a couple years ago. It was a remake of a movie 20 years ago. The story, supposedly, of the Antichrist. Some of us believe that more than we believe the book, the Bible, about what the end times has to say. And I'm telling you, when you begin to do that, you begin to have a distorted perspective of what is reality. And you're going to get confused, and you're going to go down directions that are going to cause you to be more afraid than you ought to be, and you're going to be missing very significant things. This morning is week two in our series on the end times. What I am going to try and do is I'm going to try and give you a balanced biblical perspective what the Bible has to say about the Antichrist. Who, who he was, where does he come from, why does he show up on the scene, and then in the end, what do we need to do about it, okay? Now, notice the first side of your study guide. If you have a study guide, I would grab it, okay? I have given you twice as much as what I normally give you in order to try and help you and simplify things so that you can follow along with me. The first page is just a quick general overview. The word Antichrist, as it is defined throughout the Bible, is basically refers to one of two things, either one that is opposed to or one that is a substitute to Jesus Christ. That's the definition. One that is opposed to or a substitute to Jesus Christ. Now that might seem awkward and contradictory to some extent, but really the Antichrist is someone who comes on the scene and is so against or so opposed to the things of Jesus that what he tries to do is set himself up as a substitute of Jesus. If he can get you to follow him, he's just basically opposed Jesus, okay? So that's what he's trying to do. In your study guide, as well as on the study screen, I've given you all the different references and names that are given to the Antichrist throughout the Bible. There are all kinds of the three most common and popular names given to the Antichrist is the man of lawlessness described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the beast described in Revelation chapter 13, and the one that is most common and that is the stuck the most is the last one, the Antichrist, that is given to us in 1 John chapter 2. Now, if you want to study this subject matter, there are three chapters you need to understand and you need to study. One of them is Daniel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. The other is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then the third one is the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 13. What we're going to do is we're going to cover two of those. Now, before we jump in, 
Let's just state the obvious. When you study biblical prophecy, and in this case this morning, the Antichrist, I'm just telling you in advance, it's going to be heavy, it's going to be complex, it's going to be confusing, you're not going to be able to connect all the dots necessarily. I don't want to treat this like it's a Sunday school class. I want to treat you with respect, so I'm going to be giving you some heavy-duty stuff. You're going to have to put your thinking cap on, and you're going to have to do the best you can to concentrate and stay with me. I don't, I don't for example, I don't have any jokes this morning. No, I just didn't seem appropriate, right? Hey, did you hear about the rabbi, the priest, and the Antichrist? They went to a bar, and it just doesn't seem very appropriate, okay? No jokes this morning. It's heavy-duty stuff. We're going to jump in and do the best we can. Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to start. If, if you grabbed a Bible on the back, it's page 631. Daniel chapter 7, page 631. Now, Daniel chapter 7 comes on the heels of one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, one of the most famous stories, and chapter 6 is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Immediately after that, we have this story where Daniel has a dream or a vision, and it's a dream or a vision that God gives him on the, on the end times that he records for us, and basically, to summarize what is happening, verse 15, here's what we read, I, Daniel was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Now, I want to just stop right there. That is a little bit encouraging to me, because when I think about the end times, when I study the end times, I sort of feel the same way he does, troubled and disturbed. Some of us feel the same way. If what he saw in the end times is what's going to happen frankly, it's going to disturb some of us. It's going to be troubling. I don't think we should deny that and pretend like it's going to be no big deal. No, it is going to be a big deal. And then he begins to ask for what is going on in this vision. I don't understand it. He says in verse 16, I approached one of those standing there and I asked them the true meaning of all this. So he told me and he gave me the interpretation of my dream, of my vision. The four great beasts that he sees in his vision The four great beasts are four kingdoms or empires that will rise from the earth. So let's just understand what's going on here. Daniel is seeing a vision and a dream of the end times. He doesn't understand it. He asks God for interpretation, and God says, Okay, the four animals, the four beasts that you saw, represent four empires that are going to come on the scene in years to come. Now, what I'm going to do is break down for you, both biblically and historically, what those four empires are. The first empire is described to us in Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Daniel 7, verse 4. The first of these beasts was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. So now let me just see if we're following. The first beast he sees looks like a lion, has wings on it, but also somehow looks like a man. Can you see how he's already messed up? He's like, I don't have a clue. He hardly knows how to describe it. We're pretty certain that this first beast represents the Babylonian Empire. They were the first great empire to come on the scene and conquer what was pretty much the known civilized world at the time. Now, why we believe this to be true is not only because it was the first major world empire to come on the scene historically in those times, but most significantly is the descriptions that he gives us. If you were to go to several museums in Europe, for example, if you were to go to the Berlin Museum, you would see this. These are the Ishtar Gates. The Ishtar Gates 
through archaeology were digged up on the outskirts of what was ancient Babylon. Ancient Babylon, which is now modern day um, Baghdad in Iraq, was considered to be one of the uh, ancient marvels of the world. It was incredibly ornate. They were very exquisite in what they built and how they built it. This was just the gate to get into the city. It, it's, it's more than just providing defense. It's, it's nice. And it's got inlaid tile and all kinds of things there. On the outside of the gate, you'll see, not very clear, but you'll see different animals. When you started to go through the Ishtar gates, what they did is they put the most significant animals, primarily that they worshipped, and what you're primarily going to see is this right here. The lion was considered to be the prime of all the animals that they considered to worship. Now, when you go through the Ishtar gates, then you would have statues on either side, and this would go on for quite a while. The statues had represented the primary symbol for the Babylonian Empire. You've seen this in history books. You will recognize it as soon as I put it up on the screen. If you go to the Louvre Museum you do, in Paris, you do not want to miss the Babylonian exhibit. You can go through the Louvre for like a day and not see half of it. But you do not want to miss the Louvre Museum because you will see this. This was the primary symbol for the Babylonian Empire. It would be the equivalent of the bald eagle for the United States of America. Now I want you to notice what it is. What they came up with versus what Daniel saw hundreds and hundreds of years prior. It's a lion that has wings on it and somehow also looks like a man. So you go back to Daniel chapter 7 and you go, oh my goodness. Then you look at the second beast. The second beast is described to us in chapter 7 verse 5. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. Now notice the description it gives. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth, it was told, get up, eat your fill of flesh. The second empire, we believe to be the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was the empire that came on the scene that basically conquered the Babylonian Empire. It was a coalition of two people groups. The Medes and the Persians, they came together and attacked and destroyed the Babylonian Empire. Now, very quickly, what we know in history books is that the Medes were overshadowed by the Persians. The Persians became the most significant strength and power of that coalition. In fact, if you look in history books today, sometimes they won't even refer to it as the Medo-Persian Empire. They'll just call it the Persian Empire. And then you look at the description of what Daniel and how Daniel describes this empire. It's an empire that was raised on one of its sides. In other words, half of it was stronger than the other half. And you just take what Daniel saw and you overlap it with history and it seems to match up. The third um, empire is described in verse 6, the leopard. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. I want you to notice the number that is emphasized in this, in this description. It looked like a leopard. On its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads. And what were these four heads given? They were given the authority to rule. The third primary empire to come on the scene it was the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was led by an incredibly charismatic and military genius of his day, you will all have recognized his name. His name was Alexander the Great. 
you have a picture of him on the bottom right-hand side of the screen there. Now, the problem with Alexander the Great is that he died when he was only 30 years old. He was able to conquer for the Greek Empire everything that the Medo-Persians had conquered and everything that the Babylonians had conquered and more. That was the Greek Empire. He died at age 30. When he died, he had no heir. He had no natural heir to pass on the empire and the kingdom to. So you know what history tells us happened? His top four generals split the kingdom. And now you look at Daniel 7, 6, and you go, it matches up again. The fourth and the most significant empire, and here's where you really have to focus because it gets a little complicated. The fourth one is mentioned in chapter 7, verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all other former beasts and kingdoms. And then it says this, it had ten horns. This fourth kingdom and fourth beast represents and refers to the Roman Empire. This was who was in control when Jesus was on the scene. So let's just back up. You have, Daniel sees a vision of the end times. And in his vision, he's told there's going to be four primary empires. The first empire is the Babylonian empire. And the second empire is the Medo-Persian empire. And the third empire is the the Greek empire. And then the fourth empire, clearly the strongest of them all, is the Roman empire. Now, this empire is what he's most interested in. And he asks follow-up questions on this last fourth beast, the Roman Empire. And he comes up with and is told that in the last days, the Roman Empire will have three distinct stages. It's in your notes if you want to jot it down. The first stage is described to us in verse 23. First stage of the Roman Empire. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The first stage of the Roman Empire, you see it on the screen, Romans control the known civilized world. Unlike the Babylonian and the Persian and the Greek Empire, they were able, through their military machine, to basically conquer the entire known world. I mean, it was incredible. Not only did they conquer it, but they maintained it, and then they taxed it, and then they governed it. It was incredible. It was the first superpower ever to be established on earth. The Roman Empire, stage number one, conquers the known civilized world. Stage number two comes in the first part of verse 24. Ten horns, we've already been told it's got ten horns. And imagine seeing this in a dream. Ten horns are the ten kings that will come from the kingdom. Now stop right there. The Roman Empire, of course, didn't survive. In the beginning of the 5th century, it was destroyed by the Huns and the Goths that came from from Central and Northern Europe. Now, when the Goths and the Huns were basically barbarians, came and they sacked Rome and they destroyed the Roman Empire... What was significant about what they did was the following. They were not able to consolidate and keep control of the land that the Roman Empire had once controlled and conquered. So they sacked Rome, and then all of a sudden, because there was not one superpower, Europe splintered off into all kinds of countries. Let me give you some of the countries that basically were burst as a result of the Roman Empire falling apart. You have nations such as Greece, Italy, 
Spain, Portugal, France, Belgium, Holland, and Great Britain all had their origin and essentially the birth of their nation came when the Roman Empire fell apart. Now, what the first, first part of verse 24 says is this. Stage number one, the Roman Empire controls the known world. Stage number two, after the Roman Empire seemingly is gone, ten countries that were part of the original Roman Empire form a political, economic, and military coalition. It's almost like the Roman Empire comes back into being. So they establish and control the whole world, and then ten countries that sort of were part of the Roman Empire form a coalition. Many of you know that I grew up in Europe, and if you don't know the history of what is happening in modern-day Europe, I'm going to give you a quick 50-year synopsis of what has happened. In 1958, the European Economic Community was established. It was the first significant treaty of its, of its kind. It was agreement, a cooperative agreement amongst European nations. Now, since the EEU was established, they've had agreement after agreement and coalition after coalition and treaty after treaty until... December of 2009, the Lisbon Treaty was signed. Now, the Lisbon Treaty came into effect after years of diplomacy amongst European nations, and I'm just going to tell you and quote to you what they came up with. This treaty was meant to introduce, and I'm going to give you the name, it's a big name, supranationalism, they call it. Supranationalism. You say, what is supranationalism? This is what it is. This is their definition. Decision-making in a multinational political community. Decision-making in a multinational political community. Now, I'm going to take 10 steps back from all these fancy words, and I'm going to tell you very basically what's happening in Europe right now. If you've vacationed in Europe in the last two or three years, you will know what is happening. There's no such thing as the Spanish peseta anymore. There's no such thing as the Italian lira anymore. There's no such thing as the French franc anymore. They're all been abolished. Now the one currency in all of Europe, essentially, most of Europe, is the euro. That's all you can use other than Great Britain and some of the old eastern countries. That's all you can use. They have come up with, in the last basically five years, a major, major significant economic coalition. Who would have ever thought that in my day when I grew up in Spain, that would have never happened, ever happened, okay? Now, the other thing, you know how we have a border between us and Mexico or between us and Canada, and sometimes it takes longer or quicker to go through? In Europe, it's basically a borderless continent now. When you go into the airport now, they have two lines. They have one line for Americans and the rest of the world, and then they have the rest for the EU, European Union. And if you're part of the European Union, you just walk right in. If I'm a Spanish person and I want to work in France, I don't need a work visa because I'm part of the EU. If I'm from Greece and I want to work in Italy, it doesn't matter. I'm part of the EU. And what they have now established is a major European Union coalition. Now, all I'm telling you is this. When people look at what Daniel chapter 7 and they look at this, there's only one piece missing, one piece and one piece only. It's the last one, the military coalition. They are one step away from that stage almost coming to fruition. It's almost there right now. 
Now, the third stage of the ancient Roman Empire is described in the second part of verse 24. Ten horns are ten kings that will come from the kingdom. The other king will arise. And and it says, after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier one. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, oppress his saints, try uh, try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half a time. Okay, here's the summary. Four beasts representing four kingdoms. The last one is the unnamed beast represents the Roman Empire. There's three stages to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire controls the known world. Second stage is a coalition of ten countries come together and form this massive coalition. The third and the final stage is one of the members and leaders of these nations establishes him themselves as the unquestioned leader, not only amongst this coalition, but in the entire world, And the Bible refers to that one individual, the third stage of the Roman Empire, as the Antichrist. That's his rise to power. Now, I told you last week, I'm not trying to get all crazy and I'm not going to set dates or anything. But I'm just telling you, as someone who tries to be pretty balanced, I read Daniel. And then I look at parts of what we're going to look at now in Revelation 13. And you can't help but wonder, because we're just one or two dominoes away from it going quick. Go in your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 13, the last book in the Bible. The last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 13. Now what Revelation chapter 13 outlines for us is what is the Antichrist going to do? What is the Antichrist's agenda? One of the biggest fallacies of movies like The Omen is that the Antichrist is going to be a bad guy that no one likes. It is completely the opposite. He initially is going to be the most popular single figure that the world has ever known. In terms of political, everybody wants to follow this guy. Why? Because he's able to accomplish three things. Let me show you. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Now I want you to see if you hear anything that sounds similar. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now, does anything sound familiar? Here you've got Daniel prophesying almost 2,000 years before one of the disciples of Jesus, John, prophesies as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. He writes and sees the vision of Revelation. And there's almost a close overlap. I mean, there's leopards and lions. and It's close. And then he introduces and begins to talk about this figure called the Antichrist. And he says there's three things he's going to try and do. Number one, he's going to establish one world government. One world government, verse 7. Verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And then it says this, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Now, I want you to imagine reading this 1,500 years ago. That sounds crazy. One guy, one person is going to be the president, the prime minister of the entire world. That is the most foolish thing I've ever heard. Imagine reading this 500 years ago. There's no way this is going to happen. One person, the ruler of the entire world, ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. But things have started to happen over the last 50, 60, 70 years where very 
respectable, popular leaders have begun to say the following. Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II, was quoted as saying, The creation of an authoritative, all-powerful world order is the ultimate aim towards which we must strive. Unless some effective super-government can be brought quickly into action, the proposals for peace and human progress are dark and doubtful. He's suggesting a super-government. When he said this, however, it was dismissed as it's not going to happen because you had Germany and, and, and Nazism way over here, and then you had the Soviet Union, which was being formed, and communism, and then you had the United States of America and the Western allies, and then you had Japan. You couldn't get farther from, there was no overlap. So people saw that's not going to happen. And then in the 1980s, this was said. Mikhail Gorbachev, he was significant in the Soviet Union, not being the Soviet Union anymore, and, and becoming Russia. And he said this, Further global progress is now possible only through a quest for universal consensus in the movement toward a new world order. Now, this guy was a guy with guts. He really was. To be able to accomplish what he accomplished in the former Soviet Union, whether we agree with all of his policies or not, he, he, was, he took a guy with guts, and he stood up at the end and said something like this. And most of the Western world, including the United States, said something like, well, the reason he's saying that is because the Soviet Union has fallen apart economically, and they now need our help, right? And he, too, was kind of sort of, ah, it's not going to happen. But then, just a few years ago on TV, we all watched this. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. It's just one domino away. Everybody's already talking about it. Everybody's already saying it makes sense. Just listen to what the United Nations is saying. And what Revelation 13 says is very simply this. At some point in time, it's going to happen. And who we, the world, is going to pick as their leader is going to be what the Bible calls the Antichrist. Now, why this person is selected, the Bible makes very clear. They will have unusual diplomatic skills. They will be engaging. They will be a tremendous communicator. And significantly, they will be the first and the only person to be able to broker peace between Israel and the Palestinian people. The first and the one that was able to bring it about. So they will come to a decision on who controls Jerusalem and the Golan Heights and the security of Israel as a state and the self-governing of the Palestinian people. He will be able to broker this deal and the entire world will go, well, that is the most logical person to lead us. Now, that peace will last for a while until the Bible tells us he will lead a multinational army against the state of Israel in one final battle before the Lord returns, and that battle is called the Battle of Armageddon. Someone was talking to me afterwards about this, and it's kind of interesting. You do know that Israel only has one friend in the world left. Just one. It's the United States of America. Every other major country is not for Israel. They're more for the Palestinians. And I'm not even making a political um, statement of truth or who's right or who's wrong and... All I'm saying is that 
you start to look at these things and it just makes you, it makes you wonder. One world government is what he's going to strive for. The second thing he's going to strive for is one world economy, verse 16. One world economy. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead. I have a book in my library that's just called The Mark. The beast controls the world. And, you know, it's all crazy and what's going to happen. And frankly, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But what is this mark all about? Well, we're told what it's all about in verse 17. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So essentially what, what they're trying to do, by the way, when, when Bible students read this 500 years ago, they would read this and they would go, it sounds crazy, but it, it almost sounds like an economic system that is cashless, that there's no currency. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, I pay most of my bills online now. We're going further and further and further away from paper money so that we can, electronic money is so much easier, to, it goes quicker and so on and so forth. And, and so this mark, I mean, if you want to fill up your car, you have to have this mark, whatever it is. If you want to go to Walmart, you got to have the mark. If you want to go golfing and pay your tea fee, you got to have the mark, you know, whatever it is. And we, I don't know what it is. People make, oh, it's some computer chip. I don't know what it is. People are making it up. We don't know what it is yet. Okay, but it's something to do with some number. And, and what is the number? We'll look at the, the last, you know, verse 18. His, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. I am not going to spend a lot of time, but some of you love to get into this. I'm going to tell you your three options. Three options is that it's literal. All you got to do is count the, the, the letters in someone's name, their first name, their middle name, and their last name. If, you know, that's why people, some people went crazy when they realized Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters, and oh my goodness, it could be him, right? This week, just for fun of it, I was actually looking at the church directory and started to count people's names. Like, oh my goodness, you know? Sent a couple people over to Valley Bible, and uh, no, no, I'm, just, I'm just, just messing with you. I don't, you know, we don't have a clue. Some people say, no, you have to give numerical value like they did in the ancient days. So A equals 4, and B equals 10, and C equals 15. And, you know, they had all these calculations, and you have to read their name and calculate and figure out. And then that's why people say, no, 666 represents Emperor Nero. If you've ever heard that theory, it comes from this second idea. The third is some people tend to believe it's just symbolical. It's symbolical because the number seven is symbolical as well. You do know in the Bible and the book of Revelation, seven represents perfection. In our culture, perfection isn't, we don't say you're a seven. No, we say you're a 10. If we say you're a 10, we mean you're top dog. In that culture, they meant you're a seven. That meant you're as high, as good, as perfect as you could get. That's why there's seven bowls and there's seven trumpets and there's seven churches. So if you come up with a number for God, well, the father, seven, the Son, seven. The Spirit, seven. God's name or number would be 777 if we came up with a number. So people go, this 666 is just symbolical. It's, it's a way of saying, you think you're per- perfection? You think you're a seven? You're not a seven. You're a six. You're not, a, you're not perfection. Honestly, we don't know. And all I'm going to tell you is this. When it happens, we'll all go, oh, that's what it meant. So don't get too caught up in it, okay? Last thing is this, he's going to introduce one world religion. So one world government, one world economy, one world religion, verse 3. Verse 3. 
One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Now, real quick, I'm just going to add this in. One of the things that the Antichrist tries to do is mimic Jesus. Everything that Jesus did, the Antichrist tries to mimic and copy. And we're told that he will have some sort of fatal wound. I don't know if he's going to get shot or he's going to fall off his Jeep or something's going to happen. He's going to have some fatal wound. And it looks like he's going to die. Oh my goodness, he's going to die. But then all of a sudden, he quote unquote resurrects and comes back to life. This is him trying to mimic the resurrection. And everybody's going to be so impressed because we're going to be told he's done. He's a goner. It's just a matter of hours. And he's going to basically survive whatever this fatal wound is and gain more credibility, which then leads to verse 4. Men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? In other words, why should we be against him? This is the guy to follow. You know what? It's not that far off. When you look at current philosophical uh, uh, discussions in, in our newspapers and any TV show, if, if someone is able to pull off peace between Israel and Palestine, if someone is able to introduce a world economy, I want you to think about how bad the economy has been the last five, six, seven years. Imagine someone coming on the scene that is able to bring peace to the entire world. Your stocks are making money like crazy. We're all living high on the hog. We're doing great. And then that person stands up as the unquestioned leader of one world government. Everyone is making money. And he says this, you want to know what the biggest problem with mankind has been? The biggest issue, the reason we argue, the reason there's conflict, the reason there's wars, you want to know what? It's religion. Think about it. The whole mess in the Middle East, Jew against Muslim. It's all about religion. It's all about God. Uh, you know, the, the United States of America, fundamentalist I- Islamic, it's all about religion. It's all, you know, you've got the Catholics and the Protestants, the Mormons, Jehovah Witness. Everybody's arguing with everybody. The reason there's conflict and war in the world and the fault of that is God. So we need to just move God to the side. And what we need to do from now on is we need to worship humans. It's what's known as humanism. Humanism. Yeah, I think we should all do that. Who should we possibly consider to worship? What person can we possibly put at the top of the pile? Well, let's put the guy who came up with one world government and one world economy. That's the one we're going to worship. That's his agenda. One government, one economy, and one religion and faith. Now, there's one little thing that got introduced in verse 4 that I do not want to skip over with you. It talks about the beast, and it talks about the dragon. I don't want to skip over that with you. I told you I'm going to treat you with respect, even though it's a little heavy. The Bible talks about the Trinity. While it never uses that word, it's clearly taught in Bible. The Trinity represents God, the Father, God, Jesus, or the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. It's what we refer to as the Trinity. Now, remember I told you that the Antichrist is trying to mimic everything that God does? He does the exact same thing with this. And the book of Revelation reveals what we commonly refer to as an unholy Trinity. Let's put the slide up there. The dragon that has just been referred to in this verse and throughout the book of Revelation represents Satan. And his number one accomplice, the person who represents him on earth, is the beast. We just refer to him as the Antichrist. The one that I didn't even touch this morning is the false prophet. 
He's, it's the protege of the beast. I don't know if it's his, his secretary of state or his, his vice president. I don't know what it, it's basically his protege. Oh, by the way, it's the false prophet who's the primary one in introducing the one world economy on behalf of the Antichrist. So you see, he's always trying to mimic. He's always trying to copy. He's always trying to say, well, everything God has, I have, right? Now, what I almost need you to do is get rid of it a little bit, take 10 steps back and go, what do I do with this now? Okay, you're freaking me out, right? And what am I gonna do with all this? What's my application? Let me give you two, three quick applications. Let me take about five to six minutes. And I need to do this because or else we just wasted the last 30 minutes if we don't come up with application. Number one, stop believing what books and movies tell you about the end times. And start reading what this book, the Bible, has to tell you about the end times. You're making a huge mistake if you're believing movies, okay? The second thing is very simply what Jesus said last week in Matthew. Be ready. You need to be ready. I, 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 you know what? By the way, you do know that every generation of Christians, since the day of Jesus, they thought they were the last generation. You know that, right? Can you imagine if we were Christians during, during the times of Hitler? I mean, how many of us would have said, he's got to be the Antichrist, right? Every generation since Jesus has thought they were the last generation. Very interesting. So for us to stand up and go, well, I think we're the last generation, doesn't sound like it carries a lot of weight. But again, I'm just trying to be balanced and cool-headed. You read Daniel, and then you look at 2 Thessalonians, which we didn't even look at. And then you look at Revelation 13, and you can't help but wonder, hmm, it seems like we're close. I don't know. It just seems like we're close. Be ready. What does that mean, David? Well, I want to show you what it means. I want you to take a book of Revelation and go to chapter 1. Everyone thinks about the book of Revelation as a book that talks about horses running around and dragons and beasts and I don't know what's going on, trumpets and bowls. I don't know. I can't understand it. But it starts out very simple to understand. Chapter 1 is the prologue, the greeting. In other words, he's just saying, hi, I'm on this island, I had a vision. Verse 9, the middle of chapter 1, that's a, a word from Jesus, basically, he says, I saw Jesus, and this is what he was like, and this is what he... And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, before all the craziness starts, before the Antichrist and all these tribulations, is a letter to you and to me. It's a letter to the, the seven churches, basically, of the book of Revelation, that's what it's called. Seven churches, seven cities, seven messages. And what it is, it's very fascinating that these two chapters basically summarize the New Testament. In terms of all the direction that we've given, all the things that you and I should and shouldn't do, how do we be ready? You do one of whatever these messages are. Now, look at the back side of your study guide. It's the last section. I'm going to summarize this for you in four minutes. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, the letter to the church of Ephesus. What's going on with them? I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Pretty simple. Their issue they had lost that love and feeling, basically. They did all the right things. They thought all the right things. They said all the right things, but they didn't really love their neighbor, and they can't stand that guy at work, and they're mean to their coworker or their classmate. Hey, Jesus said they're going to know that you're my followers based upon your love, and you're being punks. Some of us, how do you get ready? You start to love people again. You start to love God again. That's your application today. You're so nice when Terrence says, turn around and say hi to a few people. The minute you walk out this door, you're mean again. Start showing love. Okay? Let's look at the second one. The church of Smyrna. 
Chapter 2, verse 10. This one to me I think is interesting. Um, He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Now, again, can we just admit what some of us are feeling this morning? Some of us are going through all this and going, this is really freaky. I'm kind of almost a little scared. And you know what? What I like is that he admits the obvious. Don't be afraid. They were a persecuted church, the church of Smyrna. Don't be afraid. He says, be courageous. Be courageous. You know what some of you need to do to get ready for the end times? The greatest preparation you could make is learn to be courageous. You say, well, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Well, let me give you a suggestion. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, when you go to school, instead of backing down and shying away from your faith, maybe you need to learn how to stand up for it. I mean, if you can't do that at work, do you really think you're prepared for the end times whenever they come? See, the only way you become courageous is by fighting your fear. You don't run away from what you're afraid of. You run right at it and try to conquer it. And some of us are afraid of admitting to our family members, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our classmates that we're Christ followers. Now, I'm not saying and suggesting you've got to be a punk about it. I am suggesting you've got to learn to be courageous about your faith. Maybe that's your application today. Learn to be courageous. Let's keep looking. The Church of Pergamum, verse 14 and 15. I have a few things against you. You have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam, he says. Later on in verse 15, he says, Likewise, you, uh, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The biggest problem with the church of Pergamum is they'd compromise their thinking. They were all messed up on their thinking. They had all their ideas wrong. What's his point? What does he tell this church? What does he tell people that are in this situation? He says, study your Bible. Study your Bible. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't, I don't mean to be put you down or put you on the spot. But if I had not given you the page number, could you have found Daniel on your own? Now, here's all I'm trying to say. If you can't even find the book, do you really know what's going on in the book? You do know what the number one characteristic of Christians that fall away in the end times, the number one characteristic is people that don't know this book. They have over-relied on pastors to teach them and over-relied on youth pastors to teach them and over-relied on community group people to teach. You know what? I'm glad I can stand up here every week and try and help you. I am. And I will keep giving you the page number because sometimes I can't find those books in the Old Testament either. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm trying to point out the obvious to you. You're going to have some issues with your thinking if you're not studying your Bible on your own. And you just got to, is it complicated? Yeah, it's complicated. I don't understand it all sometimes, but you got to study it. That's the application for some of you this morning. The next one is Thyatira. Church of Thyatira, verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Very different than the church of Pergamum. The issue wasn't their thinking. The issue that they had compromised their actions now. By the way, the minute you compromise your thinking, invariably you'll eventually compromise your actions. It's just a matter of time. If your thinking is messed up, eventually your actions will be messed up. And and just, by the way, the main point he says to this group of people, whoever we are, is change your ways. There are three illusions given in this passage Three specific uh, things that all relate to the same thing, and that's sexual immorality. Another primary characteristic 
of Christians and the world when, when the Antichrist comes in the end times is sexual immorality. Bottom line, some of you got to stop doing what you're doing with your boyfriend and girlfriend. It's just wrong. Some of you, you know that, that flirtatious relationship you have with that, that guy or that secretary at work right now? You're just three steps away from doing something you know you shouldn't do. You know those sites that you go to on the internet? They're wrong. Some of you, you want to know what it means to get ready? It doesn't get more practical than this. You need to change your ways. That's how you need to get ready. Let me give you the last couple one. Um, Chapter 3, the church of Sardis. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Listen to what he says to him. But you're dead. You're dead. What does he say? You're apathetic. Things come up in this book, and you're just like, oh, no big deal. I heard that before. Ah, I go to Christian school. I've heard it before. Ah, I've been to Sunday school my whole life. Ah, I learned, learned that in VBS. Ah, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It, you know what? Where your family members are going to spend in eternity, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And some of us just got to quit being so apathetic and wake up and have some passion about what we believe. There's two more. The Church of Philadelphia, verse 8, chapter 3. He says this to them. I know your deeds. I, you, you see, you have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. And then he says this. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know what he says to some of you this morning? You're doing the exact thing you should do. You're being faithful. For some of you, you know what some of you, the application is for some of you this morning? Keep doing what you're already doing. Keep persevering. You're not broke. You're doing what you need to do. Yeah, you got some things to work on. Everyone does. But you're being faithful. Keep being faithful. And if that's you, that's your application. Do what you're already doing. The last one is the church of Laodicea. This is the famous one that everyone knows. You know, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you have to very understand the context of what's going on here. Laodicea was a city that did not have a, a natural water source. They had hot water that was shipped in, and they had cold water that was shipped in. When they brought hot water in, what do you use hot water for? Well, for bathing, for washing your clothes, for cooking, what we use it for. What do you use cold water for? For drinking. Here was the problem. When they brought in hot water from the the, the north all the way to Laodicea, when they brought in cold water from the south up to Laodicea, by the time it got to Laodicea, the hot water wasn't hot anymore. The cold water wasn't cold anymore. It was just warm. It wasn't hot enough to bathe in. It wasn't cool enough to drink. It was useless. It was downright useless. And what he's saying to the church of Laodicea and to some of us today, be one or the other. Be useful, be either hot in what that accomplishes or be cold in what that accomplishes. In other words, contribute. For some of you being, getting ready, start doing something. It's called, this is called a family for a reason. It's called, by the way, also an army for a reason, referring to what's happening down the road. And some of the soldiers are coming in, having a donut and leaving. Let me summarize This whole mess about the Antichrist, as interesting as it may be, all comes down to, in the end, you better pick something for application. If you look on the screen, that's what we just talked about. I want you to do this, and this is how I'm going to end. God is asking you to do one of those seven things on the screen, just one. You can't pick more than one. You're in one group. You've got to pick one. 
I want you to look at that screen for 10 seconds, and I want you to figure out what do you think God wants you to do based upon what we've learned today. You have 10 seconds, look on that screen, and then I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what we've covered today is incredibly difficult to understand at times. It's heavy. It's confusing. But I am hoping that we are leaving here today with a little bit better understanding about what's going to happen in the future, whether that's five years from now, from now or 500 years from now. I, I don't know exactly for sure. And I'm going to do the best I can to keep a level head to read your word, to study it, to try as best as we can to understand it, but to stay composed in the midst of all the craziness that's going on. I don't want to be one of those Christians that run around and is given dates and is freaking everyone out, but at the same time, I want to be true to your word and I want to look at what is there and I just can't help but wonder. Whenever it is, whenever that happens, Father, I, I want to be ready. And I'm grateful that you gave us those messages at the book of Revelation and we rushed through them. But I have a feeling that your Holy Spirit had something for every single one of us there. Heavenly Father, we, we are called to be your people that love others. We are called to show courage and not cower in fear. We're called to treat your word with respect and not just put it on the shelf and dust it, but read it and study it. We're called to live a holy life and change our ways. We're called to live our life with passion for the things that matter for you. We're called to be faithful and we're called to be part of a family and contribute. Father, whatever it is for us, I pray that we wouldn't have wasted the last 35 minutes of our life, but instead that we would take what you've challenged us to do, to be ready and pick something specific and do it. Father, we love you. We are told that we are to look forward to the day that we can be with you. In spite of the difficulty and the persecution that will come, we will obey you and we will trust that when you come back, we will live an eternity that we can't even imagine right now. We love you and we thank you for what you've taught us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.